0: Welcome to the Blue Collar Enlightenment Show, where we learn new things every episode through conversations with guests from around the globe. So hit that sub button so you can keep up with the journey.
1: Hey guys, it's your co-host Pete. Today we welcome Shane Stanley. Shane is an award-winning director, writer, and producer. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us, Shane. How are you doing, man? Hey guys, I'm good. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, I appreciate you coming on. It's an honor, really. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing good. You know, uh, the weather is definitely taking a change out here in in Southern California. You know, we're, we're not as aggressive on our getting cold as I think you guys are back East. So, you know, we don't really start feeling the colder days till about late October, early November. And, um, we're still in the early seventies here. It's, it's not been that cold, but we got Thanksgiving in a couple of days. So we're getting ready for that. Other than that, we're doing really good. Oh, 70s. What
0: I give for some 70 degree weather right now. It was like 61 <sighs> earlier. No, it wasn't. Yes, there it was. didn't feel when like I no was 61. Yeah. It was But 70s. Oh my god.
1: Yeah, it was 72 oh, yesterday good. where I was. Oh,
0: this morning it was like 34. <laughs> <laughs> And someone's not doing a great job keeping the fireplace going. My bad. <laughs> you know, you get that deep sleep in the cold, from what I yeah. hear. So, but anyway, uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself.
1: God, about me? Um, well, I'm I'm a filmmaker. I uh, I write, produce, direct, I cut. Um, you know, I, I grew up just kind of doing everything in the industry. I grew up with a, a father who was a documentary filmmaker, and um, at a very young age, you know, was around the cameras, the edit systems, and, and just always being on a set. So I, you know, I learned it learned a lot about the mechanics of working in and around the industry at a very young age. And when uh, I finally decided to to, to really put my energy and my focus on this industry as I was growing up. um, You know, I I just, I had always been around people that had worn a lot of hats and that's kind of always been my thing. Um, So, you know, I'm a filmmaker, which, you know, kind of covers a whole bunch of the the stuff that comes with it.
0: So what was that moment you knew that you were going to be doing this for the rest for forever, pretty much?
1: I think I knew that this is what I was going to do when other options ran out. And I don't, I, you know, it's, I grew up in and around it. I was very fortunate to have success at a young age in front of the camera and then working in production with, with my family on some shows that did well, but it wasn't my passion then, you know, I was more interested in being in music and, and uh, racing dirt bikes and, you know chasing girls at 16, 17 years old. That's, that's what we were built to do. You're not thinking career. At least I wasn't, I was a little behind the, the eight ball with that. And, um, you know, finally, you know, I always worked around the business. That was how I made my living and my income, but it wasn't until I was about 23, 24 years old that I hung everything up, you know, other options up and said, okay, I'm going to commit. And, and I really kind of had to start from square one. You know, I'd had a lot of Experience and success doing things without the passion of doing them and being a part of some very successful projects. And, um, you know, God bless my dad when I decided I wanted to do this. I said, Hey, I'm, I'm ready to go to work. You're going to hire me. And he just laughed and said, You know, dude, you can find an old Rolodex or something with some old phone numbers in it. Good luck getting a job. Start Start hammering the phones. And that's what he did. And, you know, I made a lot of calls and, and didn't get a lot of – didn't get very far. And uh, just, you know, just started making myself available to people that knew people that I knew that were willing to bring me on as an intern or free help. I, I worked for free for about, you know, two, two years doing all sorts of different jobs on a set to kind of prove myself to the outside world that I, I could work.
0: And what's your, uh, what's your earliest memory – of being on a set, you know, being around it for so long.
1: I think my earliest memory of being, being on a set, Jonah was probably, I was like four. Um, I was, I was doing this safety film with June Lockhart from, uh, from Lassie. June Lockhart was, was a big deal. I think she's still alive. And um, yeah, June Lockhart, it was some industrial film. And I remember working on that and being an actor in that. And, Being one of the kids that, you know, didn't walk safely and got hit by a car. I was always the kid that got hit by cars and got burned and got shocked or drowned or choked because he swallowed a a rubber ball or something.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So being in it so long now, if you could go back and tell yourself one thing, you know, really early on, what would you tell yourself?
1: If I, God, you know, that's a great question. I think it's, I've, I've made it a habit never to look back and, and regret or wish he'd done anything differently. But I think if I could have go back and tell my younger self, anything, it would be to be patient. It would be to be, um, understanding of the process. Things never happen in this industry as you plan. Um, even when they go well, it's never how you plan things come up so sporadically. And, you know, you'll, you'll be going down a path where you're, you're sure you're going to be doing this, this, and that. You'll be working on a project that you're certain is going to go or working for a company that, you know, you think you'll, you'll last forever. You know, three months from a blink of an eye, you could be on an entirely different project you never knew existed three months before and working for a different company or different people. And there's just nothing is consistent in this industry. So you're, you're constantly learning how to, to bob and weave with, with adversity. And, um, you know, it's, it's an exciting life, but it's, you know, as you're trying to find your way and you're trying to carve out your, your, you know, trying to make a name for yourself, it's very hard. It's, uh, it's very, it's, it takes a lot of time and you have to start, as I said earlier, you have to start at the bottom and work your way up. And uh, sometimes you find yourself working your way up and you start at the bottom again, and then you work your way up and you start at the bottom again. And um, it was, it was nice talking to a lot of people that I knew that were older in the business. And it was, it was relief really, it was a relief to know that I wasn't the only person that went through that, <laughs> you know? Um, Cause you know, it's our industry, you know, you have a lot of artists and, and people that are very myopic and selfish. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's, it's, you know, it's feast or famine in our industry. You, you don't make it because you, you know, you're, you're in pods, you know, relationships are everything, connections are everything, but it's really about your work ethic. It's about your talent. It's about your, you know, how you are from the minute you check in to the minute you check out. And I think that, you know, when you're in, in when you're doing it, it seems like it's just endless. And, and I think, you know, to answer your question, I think I just would have reminded my younger self to just be very patient. It's a long, it's, it's a marathon. It's definitely not a sprint.
0: Right. For, that's pretty much anything in life. You, you ain't going to know everything right off the bat. Um, but you're speaking about the process and you're speaking about the processes and the inconsistency of the industry. Is there a, uh, at least kind of a template that you use for every uh, movie that you do, every film that you do, you know, is there a process that you have to go through start to start to finish?
1: You know, there is, um, for me, I think that it preparations, everything. Uh, When we commit to doing a project, I, I over prepare going in because, you know, growing up, when I'd work on people's sets, it was, I I could never understand why the wheels would come off the wagon. You know, you see it. I see it in a lot of projects that I go visit, you know, you hear about the horror stories, you know, whether it's like what happened in in unrest, you know, with Alec Baldwin and that DP and and tragedy that happened there. Let's just, let's just call on it. And those things don't happen because you prepare those things don't happen because you, you don't allow a mindset to enter your, your workspace. Um, People can throw mud and poo back and forth all they want on that. But at the end of the day, somebody somewhere in in a decision-making capacity made a decision to let the the inmates run the asylum. That's why that happened. And so for me, um, I I don't do a film without at least three months of prep. I just, I just feel like the amount of prep that needs to go into a project. So when you're filming, you have a plan, A, B and C and that, You know, I just, to go into something, anything less than over-prepared is a waste of time. I'd rather exhaust myself in preparation for a project and make sure everything goes smoothly during the the project shooting or the production of it. You know, there's no excuse why, because a location falls out, you don't have another place to go, or because somebody on the crew got a better paying job and leaves you three, three weeks into a shoot that he can't be replaced or she can't be replaced. Um, and that all comes with experience of, of preparation. And that's to me, everything. So when I get ready to make a film, there's a three month process that has to happen before from, from, okay, we have a green light to actually going and shooting. And without that, it's, you know, for me, it's just what I, what I, what I want.
0: Have you ever had an actor or actress quit on you halfway through filming?
1: No, but I've, I've had enough of them where I wish they would have. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can work with some real, real unbelievable personalities in this industry. Um, I, you know, never had an actor quit, never had an actor quit. Um, and I, and I, I appreciate all actors, even the difficult ones cause they bring something. Um, no, never had an actor quit. You, you know, sometimes they don't want to come out of their trailer. They're nervous or uncomfortable, or they had a fight with a co-star or or banging a PA and don't want to come out of the trailer because everybody knows, you know, I mean, shit. This business has so much crazy stuff that goes on that, you know, but I I think it's, it's gotten to the point where, you know, um, I think it's about the respect factor. I think an actor would want to quit a show because they don't respect the people that are making the film. They don't, feel safe on a set, whether it's because of the way people are treating them or the stunts that are going on or what they're being asked to do. That could be dangerous. I mean, that's, you know, actors are human beings. They're very sensitive beings. Um, and they, they thrive on everything going on around them. You know, I always say that they got their little antennas and barometers out, you know, like these, these crickets, you know, way out to here. So they, they feel everything. And sometimes you have a a crew that's just not respectful and quiet and understand the actor's process. And I've seen actors walk or just go to an AD or director and say, Hey, you know, let me know when, when the crew gets their shit together, I'll be in my trailer. I mean, it hasn't happened to me, but I've seen it, heard of it. Never had an actor quit. Have you ever heard of it? Oh, absolutely. We worked with, we worked with Dennis Hopper, We worked with Dennis Hopper back in 2000, 2001 and he had can't, he had shut down the previous two films he was on. He was so fed up or upset with the lack of prep or didn't agree with the storytellers vision. I didn't get the gist of it. I just heard that we're really going to have to make sure we stay on schedule and he and the director get along. I wasn't directing it, but it was like, they, they have to get along Because he shut down the last two films he did. That's insane. You know, a star that big. You know, Dennis Hopper obviously had his day. God rest him. He had his day of being the big star. But as his career and time went on, Dennis became a very bankable star for independent filmmakers. Where, you know, if you're doing a 3 or $4 million film, you may be giving Dennis a million of that. And if Dennis quit and wasn't getting his way and decided... F this, I'm leaving. That was that. That was definitely putting a major wrinkle in the sheet. You know, <laughs> oh, hell yeah. so and it I'm happens.
0: Sure I'm sure it's a lot of work to have to go back and recut that film and redo scenes with new people.
1: A lot of times you can't. It becomes, and the actor knows they hold that power. Sometimes they just want more money. Sometimes they want more control. Mm. A lot of times smart producers will insure against that you can insure you can do cast insurance you can do all sorts of you know they got insurance for everything right so you know i don't know if it's called pain in the ass actor insurance but they have you know you could you could insure against cast you can get a bond uh, you can have a contingency like i've 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 been warned about actors before that i've worked with where I, i'll go to an investor and say look uh, i want to hold that actor's salary in contingency because if they don't make it through due to a drug addiction or an attitude or they piss me off so much I fire them, I've got to replace them with somebody comparable. And if we get through this actor, then you can have the contingency back. We've had to do that a couple of times and it it ended up being a total total not necessary thing where it was just actually, wow, rumors about certain actors were really unfortunate because Nothing could be further from the truth. And I've also worked with them where you think you're getting into a wonderful situation and you just wish to guide you had a contingency so you could fire them, pay them to go away and then just start over. You know, it's, it's the way it is. I mean, you know, some of these, some of these actors are unbelievably amazing human beings when, when you're not rolling camera and some of them are, are not as amazing. And sometimes when you're rolling camera, they make life on the crew difficult. You know, I, I, my crew is my family, and as I tell every actor and every crew member on our films, is whether you're the PA or you're the star or you're me as the producer director, we're all equal. I can't make the film without the PAs or the stars. The stars can't do their job without me or the PA. You know, I can't do my job without either of them. So I, I really try to build a, a spirit of, of unity on our films. And sometimes you just get that one loose cannon that's just a real motherfucker.
0: You know. <laughs> Oh gosh, yes, I've I've ran into a few of those in my day, that's for sure.
1: But by the way, Dennis Hopper was amazing. I don't know what what the problems were with anybody else. I mean, there's just some rumors come. I don't want to make anybody think I'm I'm talking bad about Dennis. God rest him. He's he was amazing. And, you know, I guess you know people get along with actors that I don't get along with, and vice versa, but.
0: Right. And you, uh, speaking of controversial quote unquote actors, you in early in your career, you worked with Charlie Sheen, correct?
1: I did. I I ran Charlie's production company from, I want to say 96 to 99. That's
0: true. It's crazy. Um, you told you were telling me a story of how you actually got that job. Can you uh, <laughs> can hear about it again?
1: What's that? Can we hear about it again? Absolutely. No, I mean, I, first off, you know, working with Charlie was really cool. Um, he he had the, the he still does. I'm sure I don't see him much. Charlie had had a heart the size of you know Kentucky. I mean, the guy's just you know. Never, a, never a bad day around him. Um, you know, one of true Hollywood bad boys that you know had a heart of gold, and, and he's probably pissed off if he's hearing me say this because he's he's truly a softy. He cares. Uh, the way it was funny is I he was good friends with Brett Michaels from Poison, who I've you know been very close to. Brett's been like my my brother for that going on twenty eight years now, and. Brett and he had talked about having a production company uh, that really kind of thrived in film and music. And um, they were looking for some people to get involved. And um, so, so Brett, Brett was trying to push me for it. And Charlie had some people in his camp, I think, that he wanted. And so, so why, don't you have, why don't you have Shane come out to Santa Monica Airport? He had, you know, two airplane hangers full of cars. We'd go hang out on a Saturday and get to know each other. I got there and I could tell in 30 seconds he didn't like me. I just knew he didn't like me. You know, when somebody doesn't like you and, um, and that's okay, I'm an acquired taste. <laughs> and so I, you know, milled around, looked at his beautiful car collection for a couple of hours and it was time to go. And somebody had said, Hey, Charlie Shane's leaving. And, you know, he peeled himself away from somebody to give me a, you know, a half-hearted handshake goodbye. And he kind of threw a Hail Mary. I just, I told him a really dirty joke. I just, I pulled him out and I said, Hey, I got a question for you. And he was kind of like, what? And I told him this joke that I will not ever repeat. And, uh, he thought for a minute and he pulled me in closer and told me, he tried to one up me. And, uh, we, we kind of found a connection in dirty jokes and he said, what are you doing tonight? And I said, I don't have any plans. Why? And he said, you can be at my house tonight for dinner. Let's, let's talk about the company. And, uh, Charlie Brett and I got together that night with some some people that we wanted to involve in our business, and we we launched our company that you know we did for about three and a half years. So that's how that's how it happened. I don't think if I had cracked that joke, uh, I I would have ever uh, gotten gotten the job. A whole matter of fact, I know I'm
0: <laughs> a whole career from a well-timed dirty joke. Yeah,
1: that's true.
0: That's <laughs> a well-timed cool. dirty joke. And how is Brett Brett Michaels? How is he? Is he a pretty cool guy?
1: Well, as I said, you know, we've been practically, you know, closest of friends for going on 28 years. I I try to rid my life of horrible people. So he's he, I'd have to say I like him because, you know, we've been through hell and back together. We met back in 90 I want to say 93, so whatever the math is. And uh, it's been a while. We've been through hell and back together and been through a lot of unbelievable experiences you know we've traveled around the world together on projects that we did um traveled around the world you know working with him on his music I used to do a lot of music videos for him and the guys and uh, we just stayed very very close and um, he's, he's a great guy I mean, another guy with a heart of gold who cares about his friends and you know wants to see them succeed I mean I owe a lot to Brett.
0: And you actually went on tour with him, right? You went on a little tour around with him?
1: I, I've been on tour with the guys, whether it's Poison or Brett Michaels, solo man, God, you know, countless times over the years. Um, when, you know, I, I wrote his autobiography for Simon & Schuster uh, called Roses and Thorns. And, um, you know, I ended up going out with him, you know, for two or three stints for a couple weeks at a time. And then there were times where I just, you know, would just go because I was friends with him and the guys in the band. I'm, I'm close to Ricky and and very friendly with Bobby and Cece. And, you know, just times you just go out and say, hey, you guys are on a four-month tour. Why don't I come join you for a couple of weeks? And you just go fly out and meet them in the Northeast and take the bus with them all the way down, you know, and go to Florida until they eventually send you home or kick you out or you you end up, you know, you wake up one day and the tour left without you. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that has got to be freaking sick to yeah, sit there weird. And watch, you know, because they probably sit there in a the band, whether they just party and just play guitars and stuff in the RV and stuff, just things like that. No, I
1: mean, you know, they all, you, you have to remember these guys have had the, the long career they've had because they got their shit together. You know, right. Ricky, Ricky has a lot of things that he does that have been successful, whether it's been his comic book company or his off-road life or his, his you know, he's like a fifth degree black belt in jiu And he's got these really cool urban legend videos he does that he's got a big following for. You got Bobby, who's just a smart businessman who has always had his business sense together. and And Brett, who's, you know, Brett's kind of just been this machine, this marketing machine of himself that he's, you know, he's just been able to just keep, this this tremendous career going for so long, and it's it's friends hanging out. But I mean, if it, you know, if it was the years of getting high and just hanging out with groupies all day, I missed that one. I came into it too late. <laughs> you know, they were they were already you know 28, 30 when I met them. So I think all that twenty two year old rock star stuff had started to to dissipate a little bit. But you know, we have fun. I mean, shit. You know, if it's football season, we're watching football games on the bus. If it's baseball season, there's a game on. You know, and often. You know, it's fun to listen to people create. I know when when he goes on the road with Pete and his solo band, they're constantly writing. They're just always jamming stuff. There's just always something being written or created when you go on the road, you know. It's kind of neat. Oh, that's got to be awesome to experience.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, just being able to see the the whole process from behind the scenes, oh, that's freaking awesome.
1: Yeah, it's fun. It's neat. It's neat to watch them go into an arena or a stadium. That's, you know, if I always I always enjoy driving on tour, and I was staying up with the bus driver. Like if we're on a bus, if I'm on Brett's bus and we're driving, you know, he's sleeping in his in his stateroom, and I've got a bunk and a couple of his, you know, his bodyguard or his assistants there. I'll usually go up and ride through the night with the driver. I just find that fascinating. And uh, <laughs> part of it is I want to know that we're going to be okay because I can drive a I can drive a bus. And I have several times and part of me is like, I want to know that this guy's not alone by himself driving at three o'clock in the morning. at some crazy part of the country and dozes off. Um, I think that's, that's also part of it, but I I enjoy that drive with with the drivers. And then you arrive to an arena and a place is quiet. It's empty. There's nothing there. And then to watch all the 18 wheelers come in and start building this little city of basically what's going to happen for the next, you know, 16 hours and, build the sets and the lights and bring in the drums and the amps, all that cool shit. You know, it's, it's fascinating then to be able to walk around and watch it. I even sometimes when I'm, when I'm able to, I like to watch them tear it down. I'll help, you know, but it's, it's a lot of union jobs. They don't let you work. It's unlike my show where I'll be like, Hey, anybody, anybody got a free hand, come help. But you know, that's all union. So you can't help.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I was fixing to say, it's probably a lot like how you feel, you know, to them. When you're building your sets and things like that, and you're being able to see, you know, what you have on paper come to life, I bet sure. that is an immense feeling. And yeah, I was right. thinking, I was thinking about something. Uh, the Gridiron Gangs. Now, mm. the first one, your dad had a major, major part in that, correct? Back in 1992, it was a documentary, right?
1: The doc yeah, the documentary was shot in ninety. I believe it was ninety ninety one, and could have been nine eighty nine ninety. Um, yeah, my dad directed it, and he and I and my mom produced it, and we shot it, and that was in. I, I think it was 91. ninety one. I'd have to look. My uh, my dad and I and and my mom we had um, produced. Seven or eight uh, film, you know, television specials that were shot in the confines of those prisons from 1985 to eighty eight, eighty nine. We had had a lot of success with our TV shows. Um, we had had, I think, five, five of them there at that point. And my mom read in the L.A. Times that the prison that we did a lot of projects at, um, Camp Kilpatrick, was starting a football program and they were going to try to teach these these you know these inner city kids that are serving you know long long jail sentences how to play football and try to put them to do something you know positive and and as a team instead of you know fucking each other up all the time and so my mom came in and said to us hey look at this article the the jail that we work with up the road is is doing this my dad was not interested. He was kind of burned out on doing the stories of the kids. And he, he said, I don't, I don't think it's something I want to do. And, you know, God bless my mom. She wrote his ass like Zorro for a couple of weeks. <laughs>
0: it's
1: like, you got to do this. You got to do this. This is like you played football at a high level. My father played at a, at a very well-known prep school back east in Vermont. And, uh, he was, he was a good football player and, and we have a lot of football pros in our immediate circle. So it was kind of like a no brainer and he just didn't want to do it. And then finally he woke up one day and said, Oh my God, we got to do this. So he called the jail and called up the prison and said, Hey, it's us. We read the article. We want to document this wonderful thing. And they laughed. They said, wow, get in line. Everybody in Hollywood is trying to get the, the rights to come up and shoot this. And it was kind of weird because We had had so much success working with them and had been the only people that were allowed to identifiably photograph juvenile wards of the court and to do all the things that we had done with them over the years. And they gave us no, they gave us no consideration that was just, yeah, get in line, make a bid. And everybody, everybody in town was trying to get the rights to this thing. And my father... God bless him. He told the the head of the camps, he said, you're going to, you're getting blindsided by Hollywood. They're going to fuck you up and spit you out before you even know it. He said, it's just what they do. And it's like, you know what? Thanks. We'll get in line. If you want to do it, put your proposal out. We heard that somebody pretty significant with a major studio behind it got the rights. And uh, about three weeks later, the head of probation called and said, well, you were right. They didn't do anything. They said they would, and their check didn't clear. So if you want to get up there, start shooting. You better be up by tomorrow. That's when practice starts. So they just handed it over to us.
0: That's crazy.
1: That's what happened. So we we went up there with myself and my God, I got it. It was myself, my father, Jack Flanders, Chip Brooks, and David Johnson. Maybe Philip Hearn, Ken Schaefer went up there with cameras and just started shooting the hell out of practice. We just shot. We just shot. We just shot. Captured. And it's funny as Sean Porter, who's now the head of probation, who was the coach. He, he wanted us, he didn't want us. There. He didn't like us. He didn't want us there. He thought we were a distraction. And I, I respect that. Sean was a very high level football player in, in high school and college. And he had a few pros that were helping him coach that had a, a really good careers behind them. And they didn't, we were the enemy. And, uh, I remember, you know, him and my father had a couple of knockdown, dragout drag out verbals, you know, while we were shooting up there. It's like, you know, Sean, I, I see this being bigger than a little documentary. This is going to be something one day, and this is going to change millions of lives and touch millions of lives. I need your cooperation. And finally, Sean agreed to cooperate. And uh, we ended up making the documentary, which, um, you know, did really well. And um, after it aired, you know, everybody and, and their cousin wanted it for a remake rights. You know, we went to the office the next day after it aired, and our tape machine had run out of had run out of tape with all the important people of Hollywood proper that wanted the film. That is amazing. And um, you know, so that was that's what happened.
0: And so fast forward, and you get into. Was it 2002 is when uh, the new gridiron gang? 2005
1: or
0: six. 2005 or six. So there was another
1: story. I
0: not only bring this up because I find it relevant after hearing that, um, uh, how how Dwayne Johnson got the role and how your wife had come in and told you about it. And I'm thinking here, so the women that y'all married pushed
1: y'all to keep you going
0: <laughs> filming it and yeah, it's helped it's
1: interesting you know with my mom finding the project and forcing dad to do it and my wife watching A&E's Hollywood Story or whatever on The Rock when when I was uh, working with Neil Moritz and Neil had said you gotta come up with a cast list and my wife was like stop what you're doing this is your guy <laughs> I didn't know anything about him then. You know, I didn't, I knew who he was. I just didn't, it wasn't where my head was. Is he trying to get this film made after 15 years. You know, that was the biggest problem. The, the film, the film had, the film had, had stalled out with all sorts of people attached. I mean, as I, you know, I think we talked, I mean, there was a time I think like Forrest Whitaker and Bruce Willis and, you know, Sean Penn, I think, and Mel Gibson. I mean, God, it was like, Every week, the studio had somebody new attached. It just never got off the ground. You know, they had an absolute ass clown running the studio at the time uh, when they first acquired the project. He would, you know, didn't know the difference between his ass and a hole in the wall. So he he screwed that up. And, you know, finally, people of, of power that understood how to run a business like Amy Pascal and Neil Moritz. They, they captured the vision and were like, let's go back to the basics. Let's strip away all the bullshit that got you know, added to the thing over the last 15 years. Let's go back to the original documentary you and your dad made and the original script that was written back in 93, and let's work from there. And we stayed very true to that. And um, I, I'm very really proud of the film that we made. It's a with, really with
0: damn screen. good movie. I'm not even going to
1: lie. What's that?
0: It's a damn good movie. It's funny. It's my. I was a big fan of that movie. Not even gonna lie. I probably watched it ten different times. It's have it more than I have. I
1: have. No, I'm. Kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding.
0: It's funny how his life is working for me right now. I'm actually talking to somebody that actually you know, are part of one of my biggest you know. It's all awesome. that means a lot. Thank you. But uh, so. What's one lesson that you take, that you have taken from an early, uh, that's not how I want to word that question. <laughs> I've worded it the way I wrote it. Uh, what's the biggest lesson you've learned from one of your first films that still stick to today?
1: Oh, that's easy. Read your contracts. And then before you sign and read them again.
0: I feel that I was in the Navy. That stands for never again, volunteer yourself because you never read the fine print.
1: Well, there you go. I mean, I remember the first film that I ever did that somebody financed. Um, We had a contract and I had a, 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 an entertainment lawyer represent my interests and he, he did a very good job making this a fair deal. And for me, what's important is, is at the end of the day, you and I walk away from an agreement, each feeling that we, we we were treated fairly and that we'd want to work together again. That's, that's, that's my goal. When I go into business with somebody, I, I never look for just a one shot deal and he worked very hard. And there were some problems in the original contracts that were very detrimental to the project's future and handling and control creatively with somebody who had, you know, no business controlling, you know, her own menstrual cycle, let alone a film. And, um, and you know, they, uh, <laughs> they, uh, agreed on everything on a contract and then had me sign it. And she had actually, re- she had actually just undid all the changes they agreed to over the phone and redlined and just had me sign her original contract. And I was so excited to, I was so excited to, uh, get my first film, Financed and done. That I I had gone over everything and redlined with my attorney, and and uh, didn't think that she was going to throw the original contract back in front of me. So I ended up signing the original agreement. So that's
0: a good lesson to learn. Yeah, down.
1: yeah, but you know, hey, you, you know, you don't make the same mistake twice, right?
0: Right. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, give yourself three strikes. Once you, once you haven't learned it third time, you probably stop.
1: <laughs> I would say, at least. I like the look on T's face when I said that. <laughs> Did
0: you hear my little giggle? I was trying not to look. I was just giggling <laughs> over here. I was like,
1: he said oh. it.
0: He said it. That's awesome. I love this guy. <laughs>
1: Hey, look, you know, I'm all for political correctness until somebody equally fucks me over, then they're a fair game. You know, I'm just going to call it like it is. I don't care what you are. If you're going to you're gonna screw people like that, then, you know, I, this, hey, I appreciated her for believing in me enough to back something that I wanted to do. But what she did was blatantly uh, pretty, pretty horrible. And, um, you know, I watched her company run into the ground and And uh, she, I don't think she, she doesn't work in the industry anymore. I know she, she got drummed out of that. So I don't know what she does. I don't know what she does. Hmm.
0: So have you seen the industry kind of evolve through time more towards the better good of the regular workers of the industry instead of just the stars?
1: No, I was actually (laughs) talking to my writer. I was actually talking to my writer today
0: and hold on, time out because that face, your face is just like, fuck no.
1: No, it's, it's, I mean, you know, God bless people like Jeff Sagansky and Barry Diller and, and a lot of people that are standing up for the indie filmmaker now. It's like the film industry, the film business is dying. It's, you know, the streaming platforms make a fortune, they pay shit. And, you know, I mean, when you have Amazon paying, a penny an hour for content. A penny an hour. But you and me are gonna spend what $119 a year to be an Amazon Prime member to watch that and all the shit we buy on that site. They're paying their content providers a penny an hour.
0: Yeah, we were so, having that first conversation and you're you're trying to show me that one cent check that you had. From-
1: I finally cashed that. <laughs> you
0: know,
1: i did i, I did, like, I, did. I had a one penny now, check my and I had penny, a three penny check.
0: that's freaking crazy
1: you know and and so no i don't think that's better for the industry um i think it will figure itself out it seems that you know the the 50s were a bad time the 80s were a bad time and now it's time for the the 20s to be tough on some of us and the pandemic didn't help but you know the streamers cry there's There's just nowhere, you know, the distributor says nowhere to put your movies and then they take your movie and they put it on twenty-five different platforms. And and then they they take, you know, six months to pay that out, and then they take their twenty five percent and then somebody else getting twenty percent. So you're getting, you know, sixty percent of these nickels and dimes and I'm not I'm not crying about it. If I hated it, I'd quit. I know we're going through a phase and a cycle, but your question was, have I seen the the film industry change for the better? It depends who you ask. If you're asking for the independent filmmaker, that's, you know, humping on a film 18 months out of his life and holding, you know, 1500 jobs on that film to get it pushed through to the marketplace. And the only marketplace are these streaming services that just don't take care of you. I mean, I had a friend who had a number one film on Netflix and, um, You know, it, it, it looked great and he probably got laid a lot because of it. Well, I know he got divorced, which probably means he got laid a lot, but (laughs) you know, for what? I mean, you know, like it's, it's, he's back grinding, he's back grinding and that's how it is for all of us. And that's not a complaint. It's, it's a, it's a longevity survival career, but What's happened is, is everybody got this mindset of, "Oh my God," there's you could just put your movie anywhere. There's so many outlets for us as filmmakers now, and that's fine. But the content is so congested. When you look at Amazon, who's literally paying a penny an hour for content, you know, yeah. Not I mean, only that,
0: we were actually talking about a little bit about this. Uh, before, you know, the first time we talked about illegal streaming and. Mm-hmm you know getting the movies cut up in clips and put on shorts to where it's just the sure. whole channel of the whole movie and yep. you just play the whole movie within 30 second clips
1: you could you could fast you could do clips and chunk chunk a film up or a lot of people are starting to say you know screw the whole platform thing i'm just going to put my own movie on youtube because if it you know gets enough hits and it becomes viral or it becomes serious you know, there's, there's some cats that are making some good coin doing it. Now, is it enough coin to sustain in finance movies? No. But is it a lot better than Amazon and those other ones are paying? You bet your ass they are. You know, I mean, you have a film that saw, you know, we have a film that saw 78 million minutes of streaming last month. Well, that sounds great, but they pay by the hour. So it turns into like 1.4 hours. And then that's right. times any
0: and on top of that the you know the streaming platforms are so freaking flooded
1: that's the problem yeah yeah everything we have a we have a distributor friend who's got over 5700 projects i think films that are that are being streamed right now he acquires like he acquires everybody's stuff that just doesn't get anywhere or they couldn't sell territories he's like hey If you could pass QC and it's, it's it's like got a beginning, middle and end, and it's in focus, I can find a home for this. And he's placing this stuff on some very, very valid, like serious streaming platforms. Like it's unbelievable what he's placing some of this stuff on. And he, he is a single person has over 5,700 titles that are, that he's successfully gotten out there. It's one guy. That's crazy. So you think about how flooded it is. So, there's a part of me that understands the Amazon and, you know, to be mentality of we're not paying dick for content, but once it goes on that platform, where else do you get, where's this going to go for a lot of people? You know, we're fortunate. We've got great sales agents and distributors. We work with all over the globe. So, you know, our mission is to sell a globe. There's, you know, 170 countries, 54 territories that buy our movies. So we, we understand that, you know, certain territories aren't going to do as well as others, but the industry as a whole right now, it's, it's tough. And music went through that, you know, uh, with the whole, when, when everything happened with file sharing, you know, the, the war between the, the artists and the labels and these people that were file sharing, the people that were hosting, I mean, it was catastrophic for many years until the labels figured out ways to work with these people. And if you you ever, if you ever want to see an interesting movie on that, or it's a TV series, it's, uh, it's called the, uh, the playlist. It's basically the, the, the created, the creation of Spotify and how they took down that Napster and, and, um, LimeWire and Spotify became the, the platform and how the artists are now making money is they'll don't get into how much money they make. I mean, i seen like a, a third of a penny to play or something. I mean, it's not good, but that's, but they've all learned to work together. But the one thing the musicians have that us filmmakers don't have is the touring musicians get to go out and tour and that's where they make their serious bread and butter. Now mm-hmm. um, that they can't take away, but we don't have that. We don't have that ability. We don't, we don't get to go on a, you know, city to city and put on our dog and pony show and, let off pyro and lights and sell merch. It's like you have a movie, it comes out. You've got probably 300 films that are coming out the same day or the same week. And you got to hope that you can find an audience or, you know, find somebody that's going to like your film. That'll say nice things about it.
0: Yeah. You got, I guess you'd have to have that film that has that one saying that's going to be forever on a t-shirt. And that's, that's the merch because you that's know, it. like, like poison, you know, they have they'll have merch forever, and oh, yeah, always sell merch forever, you know, records. Oh, yeah, they do, they downloads sure do. On YouTube, I'm sure they get millions of them. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I, I know. I listen to them. Hey, I mean, on the way to work, I'll rock it
1: up.
0: <laughs> 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 oh, I'll I'll kick it back, man. Yeah, look at that. Oh, man. He's got the collection going on. I just realized that Guns N' Roses is one of the main songs I listen to on my Spotify. (laughs) Don't cry. (laughs) Oh, Lord, have mercy.
1: He said that you helped or you produced uh, Rock of Love. I was a consulting producer on that for Brett. Um, he had, um, oh, I got a cat that thinks it's going to eat, so it's going to no, get loud same. for a second. We got that same issue, Helen. <laughs> yeah, you know, I had worked with Brett for so long, and he had, you know, God love him, he and VH1 and Leo Horowitz and all the guys at 51 Minds had created this great show, and it was so successful. And, um, but I, you know, Brett didn't have anybody on, on his side that I felt was film savvier creatively savvy enough to, to have his best interest in mind. So I had, I had come on and kind of was, I, you know, the network is there for their interests. The production company was there for their interests. And I just, as an outsider who'd been around this industry for a long time, uh, it was, it was evident. I don't think there was anybody that truly had the talents interest in, in their best interest. You know what I mean? And it just, mm-hmm. it just was a friend who was like, Hey, you know, I, I did the music videos for the show. I did a lot of behind the scenes. I did a lot of, you know, I would go shoot stuff. Like, I would go out on a road with Brett and shoot for stuff for that show. And, it, you know, I'd been around him for so long. And it was just kind of one of those things where it was like, we got to the point where it was like, you know, come in and look at footage. This is a cut. We want this to guys I was like, no, you're not using this, 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 and that. You know, it was just, he needed somebody in his corner that... Mm-hmm you know, had some, it wasn't him because as the artist, you don't want to be in that situation. So I came and worked with them very well for, for the last couple of years of the show. And we did some cool stuff. It was, I was really happy for him to have that show. It was, it was like, you know, again, Brett just finding a way to, to just keep going and, and doing some really incredible things with his career.
0: Yeah. And I liked that show. That's the only reason why I brought it up. And then I was thinking
1: about it. Um, my teachers, was trying to get on that show. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, it's funny. I used to have. I used to have a lot of guys. Hey, my my girlfriend wants to get on a show, or like dads would come say, "Hey, my daughter wants to get on a show," and it's like it's not going to happen. It's like I would never allow anybody I had a remote remote bit of care in the world for to ever be on a show like that.
0: Like, I want to be honest with you. I was only in like the sixth grade, and I remember her coming in and being like, Sixth
1: grade? I mean, damn, you know how old that makes me feel now?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm really young. (laughs) But I remember her coming in class bragging about trying to get onto that show. I'm not even gonna lie. She was like in love with Brett Michaels. So that's just so funny to me when Jenna said, Oh, he works. He works. He like knows Brett Michaels and all that. It just brought me back to like sixth grade and her and being upset. That's funny. So
1: it was that's really cool. funny. I actually have a guitar. <laughs> Let's see if I can find this. Hang on. I actually have this was my wife's guitar. She had one when I met her. And if you ever, if you ever watched the Fallen video, which which went number one on VH1, um, that I directed, he he had flown in. For the, for the shoot and he called me and he said, I don't have a fucking guitar. So I, I called my wife and we shot it at A&M Studios, uh, at Henson Studios at AM and m in uh, Hollywood. And uh, if you ever watched the Fallen video, uh, I always recommend that one without the Rock of Love footage. I think their footage in the music videos cheapened it, yeah. but that's who was paying the bills. So we did what we were asked to do. You'll see that guitar. And uh, Brett was kind enough to sign it to my wife when when he came home. He he came and back to the house with me and hung out that night, and it was fun. I still have it. And uh, a lot of fans have reached out to me for that guitar. They, you know, it's one of those things where it's kind of like I I can't get rid of that one. That one's special. That's a good one. Just yeah, that's just, a good one. It doesn't stay worry. in tune anymore. Do what? It doesn't stay in tune. <laughs> It's neck, no, it's, its not neck not has been warped for 20 years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Is there a lot of bloopers on that
1: type of show that he was on? Bloopers are things that they can't show. There's a big difference. <laughs>
0: oh.
1: <laughs> you know, outtake. yeah, of course. There's. I mean, just like in any show, I mean, you got to remember, a show like that, you know, they're shooting with so many cameras, there's so much going on. And, you know, it's, it's con, it's just constant. And the producers on shows like that are constantly trying to manipulate, talk about things and try to, you know, push people to do better on the show. Those, those reality shows, you know, saying it 15 years later, I mean, you know, shit, I I grew up doing reality shows, real reality shows. I did them for, you know, 10 years back in the eighties. And, uh, so, when I look at reality shows as our society knows them, it's kind of an eye roll moment for me. Um, but you kind of have to do it because people honestly are just not that interesting. They kind of need to be helped. You know, it's like a friend of mine used to direct the Osports uh, when they, you remember when that show broke? Mm-hmm. And I remember you know, she was like, well, we're not scripted, but we know what we're talking about. It's like, everything's, you know, kind of be cheated out and they beat it out. And that's kind of how they do it. And, you know, when people are trying to follow a roadmap, especially people that are not trained actors. Um, I think it, it, it's a recipe for a lot of funny and a lot of mistakes and people start to get a little self conscious. And so, yeah, you, you get a lot of things like, you know, in shows like that, you get a lot of bloopers and stuff that comes out, but I think it's, it's, those were fun times, but uh, you know, Uh, A lot of crazy A lot of crazy Unnecessary crazy
0: (laughs) What's the most Unnecessary crazy thing That you've experienced so far
1: On that Project or just in life Just in general Within your time in the industry Unnecessary crazy God You know (laughs) Unnecessary crazy That's a good one I I would I would say, um, you know, they all kind of blend and blur after a long time. I don't have like this one thing, but since we were just talking about rock of love, I remember we were doing the reunion show, and we were in a sound stage and uh, they had all the girls from the show, and uh, they uh, these two girls got into a fight, and are you hearing a cat fight? It's funny. It sounds like cat fight. Cat fight. fucking train wreck so you've got you've got this girls they uh they weren't getting along and this one rushed her kind of like out of jerry springer problem is she was up on the top of these bleachers on the sound stage and the floor was cement and this girl ran up and attacked this other one and she fell six feet and just landed on her head Um. on the cement That, that that definitely soured the day. I mean that was that was the one where you all kind of heard the the impact and everybody just kind of went, yeah there's nothing we can do at this point <laughs> um, you know, medics shut it down and just go with God. I hope it all worked out I mean, that was that was a tough day and that was that was crazy for the sake of being crazy. That was people trying to outdo themselves for this for this reality TV show and that's to me, you know, it's unbelievable what people would do to get five minutes of fame on TV. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a six foot, six to eight foot fall backwards on the head. Cement. I mean, That's not like a watermelon exploding on cement. Oof. I never heard anything like that before. Ooh, we can go to a lighter note. All right. Uh- <laughs> yeah, but you asked. But I mean, it was like all <laughs> for sensationalistic bullshit. I, I just don't understand, you know. Crazy for the sake of being crazy, you know. I mean, the real crazy is Van Halen not wanting any brown M and M's, right?
0: Why? Whoa, he didn't like brown M M's.
1: Don't you remember the whole Van Halen backstage? That was their rule. They couldn't have any brown M and M's, and if I they did, they, were, never
0: they would on the
1: promoter and thrash the place. That's all like old, old rock and roll, like stories. You know, just cool shit.
0: No, nah, I never heard of that. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't have to look that one up. Oh, that's a famous one. Yeah. So, what's the, like one of the funniest bloopers that you've ever
1: seen? Funniest blooper, not funny. Um, well, I mean, God, I you got me on there. I mean, I I wouldn't have an answer for you honestly because, you know, when you're making the film and. You know, you're you're in the moment, and you're in the zone, and you know when it's funny. where People don't like everybody thinks oh people are going to screw up lines. It doesn't happen. Somebody may drop a line, but it's not. It's funny as they make them look like in the old Burt Reynolds movies when the credits are rolling and they just cut everybody screwing up. Um, but you know, I mean, God, I mean, I remember one time we had a boat a boat getting pulled out of the water, and they didn't secure the boat. So when all the actors were in the boat and they they were supposed to go on this boat, it was in the film break even that we did a few years ago. and Stunt coordinator didn't, you know, again, it's just carelessness. It's it's as simple as something like what happened on Rust. It's just, you know, somebody didn't secure the fucking boat to the trailer and they pulled the boat out and the boat went off the trailer and slammed onto the cement, destroying the boat with four or five actors in it. Mm. You know? That's to me is not a blooper. That's like, holy, that's like a, an absolute, like, oh shit moment. To go I wish that. it had ended up in the blooper reel. They, we did the DVD of that film and they wanted a bunch of bonuses and extras. And I honestly forgot about it until after the fact, somebody had asked me, I think it was Neil, our co-producer. He said, Oh, did you put that? Did you put that shot of the boat falling off with all the actors in it off the trailer? I went, Oh shit. I forgot about that. No, I didn't. But that that's like the biggest blooper that ever happened to me. Yeah, that was that was really upsetting.
0: <laughs> that's yeah. I wouldn't say that was a blooper at all. I'd say that's straight up mess up right there. <laughs> that's a lapse in somebody's cognitive function for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well said. Either that or somebody had a hit out on one of those actors that was on that boat.
1: <laughs> you
0: never know. You never know.
1: You never, never know. know.
0: It's Hollywood. Somebody
1: wants their 15 minutes of fame, right? Yeah. I don't know what happened. I think it was just the hurry up. We had a really, you know, it's funny. We had a really bad day that day because we woke up early. Our call time was nine o'clock to do, you know, we shot it in the spring. So we had long days. So our, our call time was early to shoot till dark and do all this boat stunt work. And. Um, CJ, the writer and I got up early to go have breakfast. And one of the, one of the coordinators called me and said, Hey, have you talked to any of the actors yet today? And I said, no, we were all staying in a hotel up in Ventura. And he said, uh, dude, I've talked to three of them. They're, they're puking their guts out and I'm getting calls from crew. People are sick. I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, I don't know. Call me back in like 10 minutes. So I, I said to C.J. I said, we got we to go back to the hotel. We we're staying this big hotel. You know, we had a huge crew and a big cast. And I went back and everybody, except like three of us, were sick. Like everybody but three of us were deathly ill. Like literally spike fevers. Like on their hands and knees, crawling in their room or on the parking lot, vomiting. I've never seen anything it. It was like something out of a really bad movie. And we got through the day. I got to tell you that that cast and crew, we only had one person tap out and go to the hospital with dehydration. Everybody else worked through it. And I was really surprised. And, and we started the day very late. We limped through the day and it was our business. It was our most important day. It was our toughest day and we limped through it. And, and you know what? I'm proud of what we accomplished that day, but that was the day that happened and everybody was so sick. And, and you know, it if we had the budget or the schedule, we would have probably scrapped the whole day and just said, let's just circle back and do it another time. But you know, on an independent film, when you're buying permits to own a Harbor and you're launching speedboats and jumping them and you have the guy that drove for, you know, Mark Wahlberg in, in the Italian job and did all those boat scenes, it was our driver, Gary Heim and Tom McComas there who are like top tier stunt guys for the day you don't really have the ability to say, sorry, we got to pack it up. Let's do it another day. You got to, you got to push through it. Cause right. we had so much to do in a tight time. And a lot of our cast was from out of the country and had other commitments. So like we had Tassia tell from the 100, she lived up in Canada. We had her the day after she wrapped, she was back in Canada, back on the show. I couldn't circle back. So I had to, I had to get everything done that we had scheduled to get done. And, uh, you know, that's just, that's just independent filmmaking. You just have to, you just have to rise above. You have to, Improvise. You have to say this sucks. We got we got the short end of the stick today, but fuck it, we're gonna we're gonna make this work anyway. And that's what you do. You just keep your head down and just figure it out. Speaking
0: of sickness and working through one of your recent films, Double Threat, you filmed that through COVID. How did that go?
1: That was you know Double Threat. We call that our COVID baby. Um, that was a lot of fun. You know, it was one of those things, Jonah, where we were we were at seven months in on the pandemic. I think it was like September. So what is that? April, May, June, July, August, September, six months in. And I just, I called, I called my writer and I said, dude, I haven't, I mean, like everybody, we haven't left our, our four walls, you know, with exception to run into a market and try to grab something without dying. Right. And, uh, I said, I got to get out of the house. I got to make a movie. I'm I'm losing my shit. And uh, he said, Well, I'm I'm in London. I you know I can't do anything. We're on real lockdown here. And uh, I I'd wanted to work with Danny uh, Danielle C Ryan before the pandemic. Her reps had got us together on on a project that fell out because of the pandemic. And she was really down to play and do something. And we were really fortunate. We we got somebody who who honestly was just a dear friend that felt bad for us filmmakers. And it was like, he just said, God, I I don't know why you guys are just not able to go out and work. I feel terrible. And if you want me to get behind something and support what you're trying to do, I'll do it. Just, you know, we have to be very careful because everybody was getting shut down. You know, they had started filming again, but Batman and Jurassic park and all those films are getting shut down. So there was a lot of risk and a lot of the money was going to COVID protocols, right. you know, 30% that under about 20, 24% of our, 20% of our budget went to COVID. Wow. And that's stuff that doesn't go on a screen, you know? And, um, so we just, you know, we just got a very tight cast and crew. We had, you know, Daniel C. Ryan, we had Matthew Lawrence, we had Don Olivieri from, Yellowstone in 1883, and um, Kevin Joy and Mogolini from Fast and Furious, and just just put like four or five of them. To, you know, we had to separate them. We can only use two actors at a time. There are all these rules. We we couldn't drive in the cars with the cameras and the actors. So we had to green screen everything, which I really hate. And we just decided to embrace it. And just just have fun, and we did. And. I had a, a tireless casting crew that just worked. I mean, we just, we just bit the bullet and we just said, look, if anybody gets sick, we're shut down. We can't afford it. The movie is dead if anybody gets sick. So I said, everybody just hold each other accountable. Try not to go out and goof off and get sick. Just, just stick it out with us. You know, you all bitched and moaned that you haven't worked in nine months or eight months. Here's your opportunity. You're getting paid. I just need you to do your end of the deal so we can cross the finish line so we have something to show for it at the end of the day. And we didn't, we didn't, we tested, we did over 435 COVID tests in a five-week period. Not one person popped positive. Not one person. Oh, that's amazing. We were so fortunate. And, you know, I was talking to people on other films. They were getting shut down left and right. You know, they they just couldn't, they just couldn't keep people healthy. We were really fortunate because it was November, December of 20. You know, we had those huge winter spikes again. It was that first year that we were shooting. And we, we were really, really fortunate. Did.
0: You said y'all came up with it pretty quick, didn't you?
1: Yeah, CJ CJ wrote the script in four days. I had, um, I had always had this idea. I was traveling with, to Mexico with my dad years ago and saw this really attractive woman, young woman working in this liquor store gas station 300 miles south of the border. I, it was one of those things where it was like, this doesn't add up. Like, what is she doing here? So I always kind of had that that thought in my mind is like, this would like, where could your imagination go to create a really cool, gritty independent film? And that's, that's where the film opens up is in this gas station liquor store that Matthew Lawrence's character goes into. And there's this pretty girl working there that kind of go, why is she here? And, uh, so, you know, it kind of let my imagination go. And I threw it at c was just kind of like, Hey, this is a story that I experienced in Mexico. And what do you think about this? And what if she's like this dual agent? And he was just like, "Nah, no, I think that's been overdone. He was, what if she's, you know, suffering from associative identity disorder where, you know, somebody actually has such a split personality. It's not, it's not bipolar or split personality. It's, it's, it's an identity disorder where like they become two different people. Mm-hmm. And um, so we explored that and some of the facts behind that. And we wanted to make an exploitation fun female action thriller, you know, just an action comedy. It, we can't take this seriously. We have no money to make it. Let's just have fun. You know, that was the whole point of Double Threat. But we knew Danny could whip ass in stunts. And I had Doc Duhaime, who, you know, is one of the best fight coordinators in Hollywood. Um, Doc and Danny and his, his goons worked together for, you know, a few days to build that, you know, the big fight scene that was at the, the ravine. And um, I'm really proud of what they did. I'm really proud of what they achieved. And that, that film is literally, you know, you and I were talking about the plug in and play rock and roll mentality that I try to put in my films. That was, if if there was ever a film that was literally just plug in and play, let's just see what sticks. That's what, that's what that was. It was, it was put together, you know, CJ had a shooting script in four days and we cast it in in about a week. And, uh, you know, I talked earlier about needing all this prep time. It, all that was, was shortened tremendously. Um, because, you know, we, we conceptualized it in September and we we're shooting by November. So I I had, you know, a little more than half of the time I like to prep a film. But we knew what we were getting into. We weren't taking ourselves seriously. We didn't even know if the film would ever get a release. Because just, you know, COVID, circumstances, crew of eight, cast of four, you know, what do we got? <laughs> and, uh, you, know, you,
0: thinking, you know, it's a pretty I mean, good movie. I, I watched it all the way through. I was. In there. Oh, glad you made
1: it. Thank you.
0: I was <laughs> like, it threw me for a loop because. What? That's an accomplishment for Jonah. He doesn't watch movies very.
1: Yeah, bro. Much. I don't watch movies. I don't he watch doesn't. TV. So I don't watch nothing him I a a Thank you. Thank you for covering his ass, team.
0: <laughs> no, it's true because he really he'll fall asleep or he'll just forget <laughs> he's watching something and be in his own little world and walk off.
1: I think the only uh-huh. movie I've ever got him to actually watch all the way through is Moana, and it's just was which one Moana, like the Disney princess movie. Oh, yeah, I you haven't know, seen sit that. There
0: and just mesmerized over all the colors.
1: You like that, huh? <laughs> Get a couple of edibles in you and just mesmerized over the colors, huh? <laughs> it's ridiculous.
0: Anyway, he's a girl dad though so yeah i gotta sit through all of them <laughs> where were we at i don't know but i was just letting him know you don't watch movies oh no i was i was hyping <laughs> up the movie I was, I was trying to hype up the movie it's a damn good movie it kept throwing me for it threw me for a loop i was like it's it's a girl doing the actual other part that's interesting yeah it threw me for a loop i was like you're telling me the dude that I grew up with being a like a hard ass in all those movies
1: is playing the weenie <laughs> <laughs> Well what's funny what's funny is is there wasn't one stunt double in that film. Really I mean the people she fought were stunt performers but Danny, there was a utility stunt person on standby but she never did anything. And then Matthew did all his own driving because he, you know, he used to do all this Baja racing stuff with his brothers growing up. So he he wanted to do his own stuff. And if you look carefully in the opening scene when when the car chase is happening, the first car chase in the Black Raptor, the guy shooting out the window at them is me. I'm the one in the black bandana shooting at the car and taking the bullet hits. I mean, we we didn't have any resources to make. Anything other than just grab who you could and let's do this. You know, my co-producer, Neil, drove it. Matthew and Danny drove in the green and Danny shot. Danny shot the gun, shot the window out of the back of the Suburban, man. That was all real. Like, we had two doors on that. We had a replacement door on the Suburban and we knew we were going to blow one out. (laughs) So I said, just blow it out. I mean, just fucking do it. And she, you know, she blew it out. Oh, man. I mean, you know.
0: did she just totally embrace that role and say, fuck yes, I'm like,
1: made for this? I, you know, she's awesome. I, I've done, God, I've done two films with her. She's she's at our upcoming film, Night Train. And, you know, what's funny about her is I, she's so prepared. She talk about bloopers. She never flubs a line. And if she does, you don't know it. She covers it so well with just a natural beat or a, a variation of the take that I I've, I've done two, two or three films with her now and I've never caught her. I, I don't have one outtake of Danny that I can't use. Um, in fact, I'll tell you what's really cool is, is, I've worked with her with, with actors that have either been late or difficult to work with. And I've said to her, look, you know, this person showed up late. They fucked us. They fucked you. Cause sun's disappearing. I can only shoot this way. One time you got one take you got one take, make it, make it rock. And she'll just, you know, I know if I, if I got one take, if I got a, if I, if I've got a choice where I give one actor three takes or her one, I'm going to give her one. Cause I know she'll deliver. That's a compliment.
0: Who's the actor that you would do a running series with?
1: Oh, like the old Burt Reynolds cannonball run stuff. Yeah. Like 007 and you know, I I do it with the people I want. I love, I love working with Danny. I love working with, you know, our film family. You'll notice we work with a lot of the same actors. Don Olivieri was, was an absolute jewel to work with. And, uh, uh, Ivan Sergei and Brent Bailey and people that, that may not be household names. I don't, I don't work with, I I don't star chase. I, I work, you know, for me, I, I know where our films rest and I'm, we're not star driven. We're content and, you know, performance driven. And for me, it's, it's, it's about the film family. And I like working with actors that know their craft. I like working with actors that are not afraid to get their nails dirty, you know, get dirt under their nails. That's important right. to me. Uh, cause I don't, I'll never ask an actor to do something I haven't done or wouldn't do. Um, but yeah, I, you know, Tasia from Break Even was a lot of fun. You know, she's up in Canada, so it's tough. It's tough there. Uh, she's doing very well up there. She was on the Hulu series this year. I forget what it's called. The hockey, it's kind of the hockey version of Hulu for Ted Lasso. Uh, she was the star of that. So, you know, there's just some good people that uh, I've worked with over the years that I try to keep pulling back. I don't have like one favorite. I think, uh, you know. I I I like to just I like I like actors that just get it you know that just they come in and you can have that trust relationship with them Jonah where you know they 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 understand the material you understand them and you're able to just do some cool shit that that works you know not everything we do is going to work not everything anybody does is going to work but you as a, as a filmmaker you try to capture those moments with talent. That will become memorable. That will go viral if that's the thing. You know what I mean? It's crazy. So T's gotta roll. Yeah. I you gotta I leave? Yeah, I gotta to leave, to leave. The little people. Alright, it's good seeing you T. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, we're gonna keep going. Yeah, you guys right, can definitely be going. <laughs> going,
0: but I have to go get our little people before my mom has to go to work, so
1: Go get your little people. I love my little people
0: so. <laughs> All right. Love you, love you. Anyway, please continue. Sorry.
1: No, that's it. I don't. I don't have a favorite. I don't. I don't start. I don't like gawk over him. You know, I've been fortunate. I've worked with some really big people in my day, and you know, um, it's uh, it's just you know, I think every project you just look differently at who can work. You know, it's just there are some great people to work with in this industry, and you know, you, you just try to keep working with them. Uh, It's like it's like they become your kids. It's like which one's your favorite? You love them all, right? Right,
0: and they probably appreciate being able to know play the wide range of roles that you'd be able to give them, right?
1: Yeah, I would hope so. If not, then you know the hell with them. I don't need to see them anymore.
0: They can move on. They can go get another director to pay attention. Oh, man. So what's your, what's your like, most fondest memory uh, within, you know, the industry, whether it be, you know, something with your dad, anything like that?
1: Well, you know, I always enjoyed working with my dad. Uh, that was always really special. But, you know, working with family is, is difficult. I mean, you know, some of our closest friends that were very successful would always say, don't work with family. It, it, you know, not everybody can, can leave work at work and home at home. And if you can successfully, uh, find a way to keep those apart, then, you know, you can have a successful relationship in both spots. And I think my dad and I, for the most part did well, we had our, we had our ups and downs and, you know, it's, it's never easy being in your early in your teens especially being told all the time by your parents what to do it's like bad enough to tell you as your parent what to do and then you got to go to work and you're working with your parent and it always it was it was it was you know we had to go through that um i could have been a better son uh i could have been more understanding i you know when you're 13 14 those are tough years you don't you don't think outside your little bullshit bubble right you're starting to figure out what uh what's happening with your body and some other things. You're figuring out a lot of shit. (laughs) Yeah. And and, and being told, being told, you know, constantly what to do by the same people is tough. So I think the greatest experience I ever had on a set was, it was, it was, uh, I was working at entertainment tonight as a uh, assistant editor and Viacom had just bought Paramount and all the shit that went with it. And all I know is I showed up to work and it was our last day. Nobody told me anything. It was just a lot of my bosses were packing up boxes and plants and pictures of their families and leaving and crying. And I didn't understand what was going on. And they said, yeah, it's our last day. So I was like, okay, we kind of worked this weird hoot owl shift anyway, that we were working from like four to 2am and getting everything ready for the next day of show. And, um, we were, everybody was fired. So they were like drinking and playing cards and I don't play cards and I had a long drive home so I didn't want to drink. Some guy came up and said, I need, I need, I need somebody to help. So what's up? And he goes, we're shooting a movie and I need help. So I went with him. Turned out they were shooting pickup pickups on, uh, and reshoots for clear and present danger with Harrison Ford and Willem Dafoe. Mm-hmm. So first thing they did is they put me in wardrobe, told me to put on a suit and they said, uh, go stand back there. We need you as an extra. I mean, they were really shorthanded. It was kind of funny. So I started out by wearing a suit in New York and their Madison you know, Avenue or whatever that, that area in Paramount is, is all New York. And it's a scene where, where Willem Dafoe gets out of the van and puts the gun to Harrison Ford with the newspaper and says, don't be an asshole, Jack, get in the van. And that's what they reshot that night. And I'm one of the guys in the background that are blurry walking around. So we, we wrapped that and you know, my guy who wrangled me said, all right, get out of the suit. Now go to the grip van. You said, you know how to do C stands and grip so go work. So I, I went and worked in the grip truck for the rest of the night. And, uh, they broke for lunch at probably like midnight because it was on a split shift. And, um, I, I was kind of told to stand of everybody's way. I think I was, I was an illegitimate hire because I was actually paid in cash that night. And, uh, so I waited for everybody to finish the chow line, and then I uh, got my food, but the director and the producer Mace Newfield were standing at the silverware so I was like shit I can't can't be seen I'm not supposed to be here so I, I grabbed my food and snuck off and sat on a curb and uh, started eating my food like this you know poor kid that was raised by wolves and uh, in the dark in the dark by myself and about 10 minutes into my meal, this this voice says to me, do you mind if I join you? And I look up and it's Harrison Ford. He's standing right over me. And he, too, just wanted to get away from everybody. There's probably 200 people, you know, floating around in some capacity. So he uh, he sat down next to me and I'm, I'm literally eating prime rib and green beans and mashed potatoes with my bare hands. And, you know, here he is sitting in his Jack Ryan attire with the plate on his lap cutting and eating with a bib and you know they give the actors all this shit so they don't spill crap on their clothes and so we just started talking and we probably spoke for about 15 20 minutes and it was a very genuine, it was a very genuine heart-to-heart talk of here's a guy who was the biggest movie star in the world at the time i mean this was 1993 94 how big was harrison ford then freaking and uh, he was he was the biggest and uh here i was trying to figure out my life and uh, it was it was a really neat time and i'll never forget they started singing happy birthday to somebody over on the set and he looked at me and he goes, "Oh, geez, i got to i got to go make an appearance, i'll be right back. Watch my plate." You know, and he got up and went and sang happy birthday to the assistant director whoever his birthday was and god bless him he came back and he and he brought two plates of cake back with him. He brought me a plate of cake. But the coolest thing was is He handed me the cake. He said, here you go. I thought you'd like that. I said, thanks. He said, hang on. I'm not done yet. He reached into his lapel. He pulled out a fork. He said, I'm sorry. I cannot bear to watch you eat that with your hands. And, you know, after eating my dinner with my hands. So he got me a fork. And that kind of was a really fun moment. So we sat and we finished. And and, uh, he said, well, I guess they called us back to work. And we shook hands. And that was that. So another five or six hours of the night went through. And the sun was starting to come up. And, uh, I was working in the grip truck and that was a wrap and everybody was leaving. And I, I heard somebody saying my name and because I, I was kind of like an, uh, you know, this little hip pocket hire for the day, I, I didn't go out. And then finally my, the guy, was my boss with the day, he said, dude, come here, come here right now. And I dropped everything and went out. Harrison Ford was looking for me. He was, he was standing at the the end of the grip truck and he was calling for me and just wanted to shake my hand again and say goodbye. And, uh, wow. it just shows you, I mean, he, he was the biggest star, you know, movie star in the world, I believe at the time. Uh, and, and just the way that he, he treated me and was sincere. It was, it meant a lot to me. So I, I think that's the, the one story that I take with me forever. It's my favorite. I put that on my headstone, bro. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. You know, he, uh, he also brought me some silverware, which is really cool.
0: That is, that's pretty awesome. So have you ever really gotten starstruck when you've met somebody, or is it kind of just like a mundane everything thing now?
1: You get used to being around, you know, you get used to it. I grew up, you know, my dad was a working actor when I was very young, before he became a filmmaker. And my dad co-starred with Rock Hudson and Ice Station Zebra. That's actually I'm on this planet because of Rock Hudson. My my mother moved here from New York and met my father and he he hit on her at a Ralph's grocery store and she said, what do you, what do you do for a living? He said, well, I'm an actor. And she said, well, where do you wait tables? He said, well, actually I'm co-starring with rock Hudson in a film right now. So my mom was kind of like, tell you what you introduced me to rock Hudson. I'll, I'll fucking go out with you. So lo and behold, here I am. And, uh, they rock stayed friends with the family for, for a number of years. Paul Williams is kind of my surrogate uncle, you know, the singer songwriter who's, who's one of the most prolific songwriters in history. Um, we had people like that around the house all the time growing up. So I was, you know, fortunate to grow up around the Hollywood atmosphere. Um, So it, to me, you know, I always appreciate meeting somebody who's successful uh, because, you know, you know that the world's eyes are on them and you're, you're getting some one-on-one time with them. That, that always feels, that, that feeling never goes away for me. Um, but, there's also the reality of their they put their pants on the same way we do. They brush their teeth. They take a shit. They eat. You know, they they have struggles. We have struggles. They're, they're human beings. They just happen to be in a situation where they're being admired by a lot of people. So it's never really affected me. Uh, but I always appreciate and respect, you know, what they've achieved. And you just hope that they live up to. I, 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 I've. I've learn that so many of them are just not what the public persona is. And, and I usually like the person that's not public a lot more than the one that is, but sometimes you see the ones that are really horrible people. And I just, I always hope for their fans that they're not horrible people. I don't care. I've, I've dealt with assholes my whole life, but sometimes when you meet somebody who's really special in the world's eyes, you just God, you go, God, I hope this person's genuine and kind and grateful for where they are because if not i'm going to feel really sorry for the fans
0: how hard is it not to really pay attention to all the critiques about your movies and shows that you've done how do you keep the how do you block that out
1: honestly i don't read the good ones and i don't read the bad ones i think if you only read the good ones you're you're huffing your own farts and if you're <laughs> If you're if you're reading the bad ones, it's going to put you in a sense of depression. It's like I I work with certain people that I've been around a long time. You know, I'm 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 51 years old. I I started working in this godforsaken industry when I was nine months old. I've been around, and I work with people that I may write with, and it's their first time having a script produced into something. I tell them, I said, look you have a choice. You, you can either read your reviews or you can't. I said, I know everybody's excited to read a review because that's just what Lucy and Ricky used to do on. I love Lucy's all oh, the reviews are in the Hollywood reporter, you know, the variety and we're, we're conditioned to need this. I said, you have to understand something like our politics have changed. And you and I talked about this on, on how politics has become something so different than what it used to be in the last five, six years, which just become poo Right. Yeah. I said you gotta, you gotta understand that, that critics are more interested in sensationalistic sensationalistically slamming somebody's work because they may be somebody who's literally living in their mom's basement who hasn't gotten laid in 20 years and they have no life and they have a voice on twitter they have a voice on youtube they have a voice here these are the journalists now that are that are rating our stuff our work and you have a choice you can either take what they say as gospel or you just don't, you just act like it's not there. And I, I respect anybody who takes the time to watch a film, but what I have a problem with are the people that literally try to become popular by writing horrible things about people in their work. And I've always, I've always believed those who can't will teach, which is the old acting class adage where those who can't teach. And I have found that, most critics are somehow, some way, people that did not succeed in what it was they wished to have done, and I feel that a lot of them try to take it out on artists. So I just have made a choice. I don't read Good, better or Different. Have I stumbled across a few of them because I've had to, or because a critic may have seen something said they want to do an interview and follow up? It's like ugh, okay, but I really try not to read them because I don't believe artists nothing but opinion, Jonah. Um, I, I mean, you could look at a band, a supergroup like Queen or Aerosmith, and you could look at these bands have sold hundreds of millions of records, right? They're, they're like the upper echelon of success in, in music history, right? And you can have half the population say, Queen fucking sucks. Aerosmith sucks. Van Halen, Led Zeppelin, the Eagles suck. Well, who is he to say they suck? It's, it's, it's his opinion and he's entitled to it. But if somebody just says, Oh my God, it's the greatest band ever, you know, which, which opinion is more true. And, uh, so I just, I try to, I I realize the critics are out there because they're, they're either getting paid or not being paid. And they, a lot of them like to write nasty things. And I always like to read more about what, what people, what people say. I'm not interested in critics. I'm interested in more like you, Like, you know, you and your wife said, wow, he actually made it through the movie. That's a big compliment. Well, that was nice to hear. You know, Um, I know women like my films a lot more than men do. I I know, and I love that. I don't, I don't make my movies for men to approve. I make my movies because I don't think there's enough entertainment for women that put them in the driver's seat that make give them the upper hand or to make them the hero. And you know, it's funny, we, we get a lot of men who bash them because, you know, don't don't let the women start feeling this false sense of security and power in your films, dude. That's dangerous, they think. And it's like, well, I think you're more threatened by the fact that a broad could kick your ass and drive a car a lot better than you and shoot a, you know, an ass off a of Nats, fly a hundred yards away versus your abilities as a shooter. And it's, it's funny. And I just, I just want to give women a film that they can honestly enjoy because I know there's a lot of women who enjoy fast cars and pretty women and fights and horses and planes and Crashes, and I also know men like that too. So it, I, I just always felt like women have always had to watch an action movie with their boyfriend, unless they're really in an action movie, they kind of tolerate it. And I wanted to give women something to want to watch that their boyfriends would enjoy.
0: Well, I think we can be honest here and say that if Ronda Rousey came up and gave us a nice roundhouse kick, we'll be asleep until next week. I mean, exactly. we uh, we can't not give them their dues because they're, they're I have a female that works for me and she does, you know, everything that I can do. And I work in one of the most physical demanding jobs that construction has. That's right.
1: Yeah. You and I talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's for me. and, And I find that the critics tend to pick at that. And that's what bothered me. Um, Cause I genuinely don't, but you, you get people that work with you that call, you know, or, or somebody else say, you know, I, I read this thing. It really pissed me off. And it seems you're really attacking the women in our film. Yeah.
0: And, but isn't that the whole thing that we want to do is start empowering more women and saying that, Hey, you know, that's hey, what I read. That's what I heard. Well. I mean, women that give birth, there, there's nothing that you can compare it to and complain is what we're told, right? I mean, not even us getting kicked in the nuts is comparable to. No, me. that's that comes and goes in
1: thirty seconds.
0: Yeah, but when you have right. to push a freaking watermelon out your body without, you know, numbing drugs, I'm sure my wife did it. The second one, epidural wore off, and she had to do it all natural.
1: Oh shit. Yeah. Cause I'll only give you one. They won't do two. Nope. There wasn't any right. time. <laughs> yeah. And I, I honestly have, I honestly have, you know, I just decided I want to make films that empower women, that give women the sense of security, that give women the sense of, of, of first like, Hey, you know what? These guys are making some cool shit for us broads. Let's go see what they're doing. It's just, I've always grown up. Loving the Hal Needham films like Cannonball Run and Smokey and the Bandit, and all we're doing is putting Bandit and, and, and riding shotgun and putting Sally Field behind the wheel. That's all we're doing. You know, just having I'd fun. i played
0: Navigator if she wanted to drive.
1: <laughs> I mean, isn't that just what it's about? Let's have some fun. Let's flip the script. That's all we're trying
0: to do. I mean, might as well, you know. So we talked a little bit about the, uh, present of the industry can we uh talk about your opinion on what the future looks like
1: you know i i think like every filmmaker jonah we wish we had a crystal ball um you know it's it's you never want to be behind the times you don't want to be too ahead of them you you always want to try to find a time to fit in work and find balance and in, in trend setting versus following, you know, following a trend. I, I wish I knew. Um, I, as we talked about earlier, the streaming thing is exciting, but there, there has to be, and I'm not the filmmaker saying we need to be paid better. I, am concerned about the investors in our industry. I'm concerned about the ability to pay people a fair value for their, for their set. you know? Um, you, you look at a full package of when you when you create a show, when you, you have a, a project that you want to make and you're given so much money to make it and you have to put all that money on the screen because you know your investor is going to be expecting a good return. And when the opportunities of return have diminished over time, it, it's frustrating. I mean, look, I was around... Back in the heyday when all we had were theaters and I was around when the home video market exploded and that's when it was really good because you did have the theater runs, even if they were independent releases and 25 to 50 theaters, you'd find ways to do okay. But boy, were those home video and DVD deals amazing. And we don't have those anymore. You're making a movie for 90% of the films that are being made right now are just simply just going to get streamed on, on a free platform for most people. And not that there's anything wrong with that. I love that there are so many opportunities for us filmmakers to get our our work seen, but there is such a a backlog of material. There's so much material. And I think that they got to get this figured out because I I sincerely believe they're going to bankrupt our investors with this, this platform. It's how do you how do you keep getting investors to sign up to invest in an industry that doesn't pay the way it should for what we're giving it and the longevity that it has. I mean, you got to understand when we make a deal with a country, most of the deals come through, they're asking between five and 12 years for the licensing rights of that film. And those, those terms have gone up and the numbers have come way down. And that's straight across the board. When you pre-sell a film or, you know, you're out trying to get deals at the markets, you know, it's like they all, they all subscribe since, since uh, the pandemic, they all have the same offers on the table. We had, when we did Night Train before Can, we had four really big distributors come to us with the identical deal for amount, territory and term. And I thank God we passed on all of them and went ahead and did our thing. And one of them, you know, came back strong and said, no, we really want the film and we believe in it. So we made a fair deal for everybody but everything's become so cookie cutter and that's, there's no individuality anymore. It's basically, Oh, well, they don't have, they don't have Matt Damon or Ben Affleck or JLo. So it's going to fall in this level and they didn't do this, this or that. So it's going to fall into that level. So everything's just really cookie cutter now. And that's, I don't think that's a healthy place for any industry to be. I think, I think, you know um, it's, it's, this has got to get figured out or I think you're going to find less and less people able to make movies. And, uh,
0: to me, I don't want to see the same damn 10 actors in the, in the same movies that I'm seeing over and over and over again.
1: Well, I'd there's a reason you're see... seeing the same damn 10 actors in the same movies over and over and over, and over again. Huh. That's. I'm not saying I agree with it, but that's what I'm talking about. Is you literally getting the same yeah. regurgitated stuff because it's it's safe, it pays the most, it becomes franchise worthy, and they can justify their budgets. Right. Put a little variety in there. Couldn't <laughs> agree more. Yeah, I, I'm concerned about the future of our industry. I hope they figure this out. I really do.
0: Well, I hope so I mean, I don't watch a lot of movies here lately. You know, I, I, when it comes to the podcast now and my daily job, I really don't have time to. But when, you know, you got a hold of me and I was like, "Well, hell, I've watched a, a good chunk of his movies growing up," and so I was yeah, like, "Wow, yes. this is like an opportunity I'm not going to pass up." And so it's pretty awesome that Thank I got you. to got to talk to you. I'm enjoying this completely.
1: So uh, like when, when,
0: what is your future looking like here? We were talking about a new movie that you were working on.
1: Well, I've got a project called Night Train that comes out January 13th in theaters and starts the streaming, uh, I believe, the 17th. So we come out the 13th in theaters, I believe the 17th it'll start streaming. Um, really excited about this one. It's got Danielle C. Ryan, who was our star of Double Thread. It's got a Dior Baird who's been in, you know, God, you know, she's in Cobra Kai. She was in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. She's been in a bunch of cool stuff. Um, We've got Joseph D. Reitman, Joe Lando, um, Kevin Joy, Ivan Sergei. Um, I'm sure I'm missing a lot of them. Uh, There's, it's a really big ensemble cast and uh, it's, it's an action thriller. It's got some, some real intense stuff. I mean, we worked with Valerie Thompson, who is the world's fastest woman. She's, She's gone over 358 miles an hour on a motorcycle and Valerie, we did, we did have one double in this film for Danny and that was Valerie because her character is somebody who's trying to break, you know, land speed records on motorcycles. So Valerie Thompson was good enough to come out uh, and go over 200 miles an hour on a street bike for us out in the dirt. And uh, we did that shit. That was awesome. And we, we had Mike, Mike C. Ryan, who holds all sorts of Guinness Book of World Records for jumping trucks, and he does—he's—I think he's the guy that spends the most time behind the wheel in the Fast and Furious movies. as the real stunt driver? Uh, Mike. Mike did some great stunts for us in the night train. Um, we had Darren Parsons, who's a well-known uh, truck racer, come out in his Baja truck and chase us and jump and do all sorts of cool shit. So we just—you know—the film opens up with like a hundred—you know. Rice rocket cars. We just wanted to have fun and just really pay an homage to all the cool fast shit that we all grew up loving, wow. and um, tied it in with a really cool story. So we're wow, really excited. I'm, be, I'm looking forward to that one. I might actually go to the theater. Oh, that would mean a lot if you did, man. That would mean a lot. It's called Night Train, um, but yeah, it's about what it's about is a single mom who's struggling to make ends meet to uh, pay for medical supplies for her son who's living with cystic fibrosis and, um, she relies on black market medical supplies because a lot of people don't realize this Jonah, but even if you have insurance, a lot of, a lot of times kids with cystic fibrosis can cost a family several, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a year. And, um, Danny, our star has a, a nephew who's living with cystic fibrosis. And I lost a couple of friends growing up that were very close to me with that. So this was something that we kind of, kind of wanted to do together. And, uh, so her black market ring dries up cause the FBI is starting to clamp down on those guys. And, uh, she being a speed freak of, you know, vehicles, not the drug, uh, makes a deal with her, with her black market contact and says, look, let me run, let me run the drugs. I'll get it there and back faster than anybody. And, uh, so the FBI focuses her attention on her and it becomes, you know, her versus the FBI. Well, that's awesome. I'm not going to make you get any more, uh not give you too many
0: spoiler alerts guys. So <laughs> make sure to go check it out. Um, so out of all the things that you've done in the industry, what's your,
1: what's the most favorite part that you like to partake in? I love, I love the shooting process. I like, you know, to me, that's the playtime. you know, um, you know, Ray Lewis, a great linebacker for the Baltimore Ravens, you know, used to say you work hard, Tuesday through Friday, so you could play on Sunday, and uh, that to me, that to me was was a real good parallel for me. It's you put in all this time in Hell Week and training camp, you know, which is pre-production. So you so you had that time to go play with your your team, and that's the fun. I, the, the shooting part is always fun for me. I don't I don't care if I'm working with the biggest dick actor. Nobody can ruin that for me. I just I just say you know what, that's their problem. I, I just I just let them just have their, their moment of shit and just, this, I don't let them bring me down. I don't care if we get rained out. There's always a way. I always said, if I have an actor and a camera, I'll make the movie. And that to me is, it's fun. It's the challenge. It's the, um, the adversity it's showing up to a set and your you know, your coordinator says, dude, there was winds here last night, it blew away our set. We, we had 70 mile an hour winds here last night. Everything's gone. Great. All right, let's figure it out. It's a challenge. It's fun. I, I don't like when that happens, but that's the whole process.
0: I think I it, like, I your like, I think it uh, helps you with your creativity because you got to kind of have to bring it back out.
1: It does. It does. And, you know, you're constantly thinking about how to be creative and how to tell the story in a unique way that's not going to turn people off. But, man, I tell you, I just love the challenge of day to day. I love when we tackle a day. And it's like, wow, we, we made it through another one. Cause you know, usually we shoot 25 to 30 days, 20, 20, 22 to 30 days on a shoot, depending on, on how elaborate it is. And every day has got its own challenges. Every day I learn something new. Every day has its, its hiccups. And it's, it's about how you all band together and overcome it. You know, you were in the military, you understand teamwork.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's very similar being in a, in a shit situation sometimes and having to, pull everybody together and overcome some shit that you don't expect, but you got to get through the day. You don't have a choice. You have to get through the day. I love
0: after that. everything is said and done. When you see that your name is right there, Shane Stanley film, how does that make you feel?
1: Well, it's, it's, you know, I, uh, I think it's, every, it's all of our film but I know what you mean. It's, it's, you know, when you run the show and it's your thing, you you do that. I, um, you know, I, I say in my book that, you know, I don't have kids and I've, I know the, I think I know the pride that parents get when they are able to birth a child, raise a child and that child leaves the nest and goes and becomes its own person in its own, you know, world and does what they do. And, I, I don't have children, so I don't know what that really feels like. But the only, the only comparable that I have in my life and my films, each one I love equally. They're my kids. Some of them are assholes and shits, and some of them are great. But and I don't mean they're great, but you know the experiences. And I just I love that you hatch an idea. It starts with the conception of just looking at a blank page that is says nothing on it. And then turning that into about an actual product that goes out to the world. That's a very exciting time. And it only takes a year to a year and a half to do for us. And I love it. And it's just the sense of pride of, so I think it's the closest thing I'll ever have to having a child. with that kind of a, you know, cycle of some things. I love it.
0: So do you feel like they should do the credits up front?
1: Like in the old days?
0: Yeah. They used to do that. Put the put the people who did the movie first, and then, then they could watch the movie.
1: Well, you talk about the end credits. Yeah. They used to do that. You know, back yeah. in the day, if you watch old movies, those old movies start with all the, 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 the below the line credits. Yeah, you're right, because they would have all
0: the different clips to go through, and then they would have all the names on it. Yeah, do you remember be, that? Yeah.
1: You would start with all those credits at the beginning. I, you know, I don't know what changed that. That would be fun to research that. That would be good trivia for a film class or a good lecture. I, you know, I, I'll tell you what I don't like is I don't like how fast the credits roll at the end and blast because I those people work so hard and you know, and a lot of places don't even air them anymore. They just throw them off to the side. And just they're, you know, a four minute credit roll goes by in three seconds. It's just done.
0: So, do, you, like find, do you find that uh, these streaming networks want you to give more uh, of a behind the scenes after it's been aired and everything?
1: No. no when, sure. when we used to do the DVD. Well, we were doing a lot of the DVD and VHS deals. Well, it's more DVD because you had the chapters. Yeah,
0: I mean, yeah. I miss those. You could go back and you could see how they made the movie. And you're like, oh, that's yeah. awesome.
1: You're you not going to get you, that in screen. shit no more. You don't see that anymore. And sometimes, you know, it's like if you watch Game of Thrones or something. You know, it's like my wife and I watching the new uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, I forget what it's called. Legends and Dragons or Dragons and Legends. And uh my point is, is when it's over, you get to hear the showrunners talk about the story, mm-hmm. which is okay, but it's not the actors. It's, it's, uh, it's not the filmmakers, it's the showrunners. And, and then sometimes you get the actors, but I miss those. I miss the director commentary. Like my wife and I, one of our favorite movies for all sorts of reasons is sideways, you know, with Paul Giamatti and Thomas Hayden Church and, and Sandra O oh and, and Virginia Madsen. It's just that great, great film. And we we finally watched it with the director, or it was the actor commentaries, and it was really fun, you know, to be able to watch it with those actors as they commented on every moment. I just thought that was so cool.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, you would go to you would go to Walmart and you would get that get the DVD with the bonus DVD, and you would you'd already seen the movie, and you'd be like, I gotta watch the bonus, the bonus DVD. DVD as soon as I yeah, get home that. because I all did that was Jerry Maguire all the best moments were explained and you're like, Oh yes, that's the reason why, or the confusion that you had, you're like, Oh, there it is. Okay. Now I get it.
1: Now I understand. Yeah. Those were good times. Yeah. I miss that. I, you know, during the pandemic, there was a little swell of DVDs that were coming up again. It was like the DVD market took a big uptick and then, and then it went away. I think it was about people wanting to have movies and, got into a thing again but I miss that well, we all used to have a great collection I don't have any I got like three DVDs now so yeah you know I I don't really have anything uh, DVD wise anymore right and you know
0: and even if you did it had to be in pristine condition it was real old you wouldn't be playing it a lot because what you probably got a hundred plays out of it and it was done
1: are you talking about DVD? Yeah, yeah, they'd wear out, wouldn't they? Like CDs, you could totally grind those out. Oh yeah. Oh 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 oh. What's this? Ooh, it's a blank. Good news, good news. I can put some different things in this. But uh, yeah, it's you know I like I like doing the bonus stuff. I, I don't even waste my time with it anymore. I, it's worth shooting. I don't even I don't even care. It's like it's like you know when you're streaming movies around the globe, nobody gives a shit. Right. Yeah. Mm. You
0: know. So is there is there kind of a less of a passion uh, for these movies that you see in other directors, or do you know?
1: Something? I never, I never take the passion. I never discredit anybody's passion. That's not for me. Um, I just think, I just think that you know, a lot of things just become very formulaic. They become a machine. Um, you know, you look at some of the stuff that. Some of the networks are cranking out like Lifetime and Hallmark. They literally are just – they just keep making the same thing and they they hire the same people to do it. And they – you know, that's cool that that's their thing. I, I'm sure – I would hope that whoever they're hiring to do these things are passionate about them. I really would. I, I'd hate to think somebody is in the chair, is calling the shots on making a movie that is not passionate about what they're doing. I mean, I did – I know over 600 projects, you know, I've done hundreds of commercials, music videos, industrial films, films, TV movies, episodic, you know, um, everything that I do, I I give it 110%. It's just why, why do it? You know, for me, I, I can't, I can't get involved with something if I'm not passionate about it.
0: What's your favorite genre to be in between, you know, music, movies,
1: TV, my favorite genre? You mean as far as like like action or thriller? I, I mean action, comedy, action thriller. I think is fun. Some movies. I love those. I love those. Right on. That's hey, so, that's it for me. Uh,
0: we were kind of talking earlier about you know I don't think we got to explore the the second Gridiron Gang when you made it into a movie. Um. Can, you, can we go through that story a little
1: bit? Sure. Yeah, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, we we made the original documentary and then made a deal with Hollywood to have it remade into a film. And, you know, my, my father and I produced together um, with Neil Moritz and, and uh, Phil Joana, who directed. You know, Phil is such a great director. I really, I've always been a fan of Phil's work. Um, Phil, you know, directed a lot of the big YouTube videos and a lot of the early Bon Jovi videos from your keep the faith album. I've always liked his style. He, he knows how to tell a story with a camera. Um, I thought he did a really good job. It was, it was a really good experience. And, you know, and, and working with, with Dwayne and, and exhibit was in it and, uh, Leon Rippey. And we had a really good cast. The, the kids were really good. They were well cast. Um, it's a film I'm really proud of. You know, it's funny is I had, I had worked around network TV for, for a while off and on and a couple of studio films that I was involved with when I worked with Charlie. And I always remembered, you know, this is just that one moment in time in your life. That's going to be very special and it's, it's going to have a beginning a middle and an end. And you, you know, I think what's funny about gridiron gang is, it was that it was that project that just never went away, you know, Jonah. We talked about how my mom found the article and tried to get my dad to do it. He didn't want to do it, and he decided to do it. And he couldn't get, it and got it, and then, and then you know we shot it, and nobody wanted it. And one thing a lot of people don't know is nobody wanted the documentary for a long time. It was very difficult to get on the air. We had we had had a lot of success at Tribune and KTLA, which were really big stations out here in LA because Steve Bell captured the vision of our first show and had a lot of success. So he just kept, he, he would block out air dates for everything we did. He was gone. He went on to start stars or encore. I don't remember. Steve passed away about 15 years ago and we were dealing with a new regime and they just didn't cap. Nobody captured the vision of gridiron. It was like everybody who watched, even our agents at CAA, yeah, it's a cute little picture. Yeah, it's not gonna go anywhere. It's it's cute, you know. And uh, finally, it, finally, it captured and it happened and and it did well. It was just, it was, and then you know, to have it at the studio back in ninety two, ninety three, and not have it go anywhere, and then sit until two thousand five, until it got made. I mean, it was a long time, but nothing was going on from ninety five to two thousand five. It was 10 years of nothing. Nothing. It was like, nothing. And you said that there was a certain point where they just stripped everything back down to the basics. Correct. Yeah. And and thank God for Neil Moritz because, you know, Neil produces all the Fast and Furious movies. He is like, he did Iron Legend. He does, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog. He did, God, you know, 21 Jump Street, SWAT. Neil's the hit maker. And Neil is so contemporary and so forward thinking in his production And it was so cool about Neil is Neil said, let's go back to the basics. Let's strip this down. You know, and it was, I was so surprised to hear him say that, but was so thankful that he did. And we did, We, we literally went back to the documentary and the original screenplay written by Jeff McGuire. And we just, we just went back to the basics and all they did was Update shit. It was like in 1993. What did what did a lot of the gangsters running around drive? Suzuki Samurai. You remember that they were driving those little Suzuki Samurai jeeps. Oh, Yeah, I do. My okay. Well, one. So, we, oh. so so the original Gridiron script had you know the gangbangers floating around in Suzuki Samurais and you know doing or saying certain things, and we just we just. We stripped everything back to that, but then just, okay, well, they don't drive Suzuki Samurai anymore. It's making a Monte Carlo. It's making an Impala. And we just, those are the kind of changes we made. We kept it very, very, very back to the basics.
0: So do you feel like when you're writing a whole script, you kind of want to keep it basic, and then when you go into the shooting phase, the more creative side of you comes out, and then your vision kind of becomes more clear because you're seeing it?
1: No, I think because I've been, you know, I started shooting only the stuff that I wrote. Now I shoot, you know, CJ's or somebody that writes with me and writes the the stuff that I shoot. And, you know, it's, it's really easy. You just, you just kind of know what you're getting into and and you just, you look at it and you say, this is the, this is how I would do this. I, I think there's, what I've learned is there's, there's three scripts. There's the one that's written, the one that's shot, and the one that's edited. And what I try to do is 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 make phase one and three as close as I can. You know, I, I mean, good lord, you, you can, you know, you can look at them like this. We have one, two, and three, and it could be miles apart, right? And what I try to do is like, okay, look, we know we're gonna shoot it here with these actors. So let's let's try to write this script, let's let's rewrite some of this dialogue to fit this actor that we know we're gonna have that. These, some of these words, the way it was written, it just doesn't work with this actor. Let's let's retool this. Or we don't have access to this kind of neighborhood. We have access to that kind of neighborhood. So why don't we, re, why don't we tweak it? You know, I, I try to do that. But often if I'm able to work with a writer early on, um, I'll often just say, come location scouting with me or let me send you pictures of all the locations we have access to for this film. Write these in. And it's, it's something that CJ's done very well, you know, because he he lives in England, and we shoot everything out here in SoCal, and you know everything's done with either Google satellite or I'll just go out and say, hey, dude, here's thirty locations that I can get for the next film, make it work, and he does it, you know. That's all. Awesome. It's a cool way to work. I like it. So
0: the young people coming up in the industry, what what type of advice
1: do you give them? To
0: keep them going,
1: I don't. You know, I don't give them any advice. The young kids today—they know everything.
0: <laughs>
1: You're, oh my god, you fucking nailed it on the goddamn head right there, boy! I mean, right? If, if they don't, they're just going to YouTube it and Google it anyway. No, I—I'm kidding. In in our industry, they—they they know nothing. Um, I I always just tell them, hey, you know what? Just just be the first one there, the last to go, be the hard work, hardest working person in the room, make ever your boss, never want to make a movie without you. If you can have that kind of impact on a boss, you're going to do very well. And it's funny. There's always, there's always somebody on every film, Jonah, that you don't know that comes in and wows you. And you go, "Who who's that rock star? We had two on Night Train. We actually had two. We had two on Night Train and both have gone on to do some really good things that they were both PAs on my train, both did some really, really special stuff. And, uh, I think if you do that, if you can do that, is somebody who's just, just be, be a sponge, absorb, learn, learn, to anticipate needs of those around you. Always don't, don't watch other people work. I think the, the most thing that makes me the most frustrated on a set is just because it's not your department doesn't mean you watch somebody else do the work. You know, we all all want to get out of here at a reasonable hour. We, you know, film industry is notorious for these 12, 14, 18 hour days. Night train, we went into one 11 hour day. Every other day was 10 or under. Um, And we knew that day was going to be long because it was a long night shoot that we had to do for the opening of the film. But I just, I say to people, look, I I don't do the union thing. I don't, let's blur the lines, guys. If you're in the grip department, and you see somebody in camera struggling, and you're not working. Drop what you're doing and just go help them, or just go help them. And and the same goes the other way. And I think if if we can work together like that, it also allows the young up and comers to really learn all the different departments. It's really important. I think they do. You know, just because they're working in camera, don't be afraid to help sound guy out.
0: Yeah, I think it's better to be well rounded than just single minded
1: that's how I, that's how I made my way in this industry. I, I worked, you know, as I told you, when we first started, I was calling people cause you know, I, I worked for my dad and was calling his Rolodex and they would give me numbers. I never got a job from a friend of his. It was always, well, you know, I know this guy call this guy or call this one. And I'd call and I would just say, Hey, look, I'll come work for free. I'll even pack my own lunch. Tell me where you need me today. And they would be like, really? All right. Tell you what, show up and we'll see where we're, we're missing out. And we'll you, I, I would work in set, set deck, I'd work in camera, I'd work in grip, I'd work in dolly, I'd work in electric, I'd work in camera, I'd work in catering, you know, hey, go clean the toilets. I mean, hey, okay, I'm here not for pride. I'm here to learn the industry and be, there's you know, not a job on a set I haven't done. And that's really what I recommend kids do. Right on.
0: What has been
1: the most enlightening moment of your life? Enlightening moment of my life. Wow. That's a good, that's a great question. Wow. That's a really good question, Jonah. I've had a, I've had a really good run. Um, I don't, I don't have one thing that stands out as the, that moment. Um, if that makes sense. I mean, I'm not a parent, so I haven't seen a child be born. I understand for parents that's amazing. Like once you're a parent, I mean, obviously my, my wife committing her, her life to spend the rest of her life with me is special, but that, that comes over time. It's not a one moment thing. You know, our wedding was very special, but, um, you know, I, I've had a really good run. I've had a blessed life. I, I tell people if, if I was told tomorrow is going to be my last day, I wouldn't run out and feel like I have a checklist, a bucket list or any of that stuff that needs to be done. If I've more than lived and checked off things. So I've I just, I don't feel that, I don't feel there's been this one thing that's been anything more special than every every other day. Every day I find something special. That's awesome. Love that answer. What's Love your that. answer? I'm going to ask you. What's your most enlightening moment?
0: Oh, there's been a lot of moments, to be honest with you. A lot of the same moment that just never caught my eye until just to start being... Aware, You know what I'm saying? My, I was so unaware of the things that were happening around me that I was single-minded, didn't care to learn other stuff. And the moment came when I was just like, wow, I'm, I'm kind of a stupid idiot. I'm, a, I'm kind of a moron. I don't really know anything at all. And so I just started absorbing you know absorbing all the knowledge that i could that i could get a hand a hold of good so, for you yeah i mean i think i think awareness was my
1: biggest enlightening moment wow that's interesting i have to i've got a to, told you i've got one that's just killing me right now okay. yeah that's really cool i uh that's interesting. Yeah, I just you know, eye-opening moment, enlightening, life-changing. You know, it's life is just constantly kick these moments out for me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's and that's that's it's just because I find so much in everything that I do. I try. I don't just do things. You know, it's I hate to quote it, but I, I gotta give I gotta give credit where credit's due. You know, Stephen Tyler had a saying. You know, anything worth doing is worth overdoing. And I, I've, I've always thought that was a really cool way to, 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 to put into, you know, I feel like you do it with your podcast. You, you really take the time. You do it. You know, you like to talk to your guests before we interview. and That's very rare.
0: Yeah, I it's mean, you if, the
1: if, you're
0: going, if you're going cold, it's kind of awkward. Yeah. You know, you can, you can break the ice. You can say, all right, you know, this is who I am this is who I am and get it out, see how the conversation is going to go because you got to set the tone, right? Right. <laughs> being that's the right. host and, you know, being the director, I'm sure you, you have to set the tone for the day, you know, with having everybody looking at you for answers.
1: Well, yeah, but you know, it's, it's interesting what you said it's being more aware, you know, I think that's, that's, that's a big part of my job. Sometimes I feel like I have to be so aware all the time. I try not to be when I'm not working. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I was always,
0: I'm always worried about what's next. What was the next thing? What was the next thing? I wasn't aware of the situation at hand. And that's where I I drew my line and said, chill, <laughs> you know, enjoy what you've got right now and do what you need to do right now and quit worried about sure. it. Sure, sure. it's important yeah. to enjoy the moment. Yeah, plan for later, and then deal with what you got right now. I think that's smart. That's really smart. Yeah. So where where can everybody find you, Mister Shane Stanley? I'm sure you just gotta Google him. That's all you got really good to do.
1: Yeah, right. Google me. I used to know <laughs> this lady. Every time somebody would say, "Tell me about yourself," just Google me. Right. And some guy I'll never forget. He was uh, at this this industry gathering. And he, he walked up back to her and he said, "You the lady that's been messing around with all these goats?" And it was the first thing that came up was her name with goats, but it wasn't her. somebody out of the country with the same name, but it, it was the top Google search. She stopped saying people Google me <laughs> <laughs> oh, <bitch. laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean I, you know I, I don't do a lot on social media. I should do more and I'm going to try to better myself. I, you know, on on Instagram, I think it's, it's official Shane Stanley or is it Shane Stanley official? It's one or the other. And then Facebook is the opposite. So it's either official Shane Stanley, I think on Instagram and Shane Stanley official on that. And then it's just my name on Twitter, but you know, I haven't, I haven't posted on Twitter since the dark ages and I'm not talking about a week ago. I'm talking about like in forever. So I got Shane Stanley on Twitter. Um, that's it. Those those are my handles.
0: So I appreciate you coming on, man. You're uh, always welcome.
1: Well thank you. I appreciate back that. Back it's on. an honor. I like your show, man. It's cool. I like what you represent. I like your, your your take. I like your attitude and your approach. I think it's it's really cool.
0: I appreciate it. I enjoy the conversation and uh you are you definitely an interesting guy and I could hear all them stories. I could sit and hear all of them. I'm telling you, I can record them all. <laughs> and I could just, you, I tell you what, whenever you feel like getting in a storytelling mood, you call me and
1: I'll record all your. I'll call you. I'll call you. You should. Uh, <laughs> is your son still interested in being uh, in the industry? He says he is. I don't know.
0: I mean, he's that teenage boy to where you try to talk to him and it just goes at like, huh huh. You I get it. like pinning down right in front of me, I got to be like okay. Tell me what you want to do. So trying to talk to a 14-year-old boy on the phone while he's playing video games. Is a, it's, oh, it's
1: tough, isn't it? Oh, it's the worst thing ever. Worst <laughs> thing ever. Well, you should try talking to me when I'm playing video games. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know. I know.
0: I, I know. I play them every now and again. But when I do, I'll be there for four hours.
1: I, you know, I think I told you, I start my day, I'm usually up by 4.30. I start my day with a cup of coffee and a game of Madden or motor, motorcycle racing. I, I will do one of the two to get my brain going. And then I just play like one game in the morning and that's it. I just, it, start, it just gets my brain fired and I'm able to go to work. Yeah, I
0: haven't played the last video game I played, I think, was Assassin's Creed. <laughs> Assassin's Creed. Yeah. That's Madden, a big one. Red Dead Redemption.
1: Red Redhead Redemption?
0: Red Dead Redemption.
1: I don't know. I don't follow the gaming world. I just get Madden in the other one. Oh, yeah. What is Red Redhead Redemption? Red Dead Redemption. I'm going to look that up. Red Dead. Ah, are you serious? Yeah. Oh, you want – oh, oh, wow. Look at that. That's like, a real, that's like a real game. Oh, yeah. Oh, so it's an online game. Uh,
0: you can play it on... Uh, you can just play it.
1: Oh, you play it on like Xbox and stuff?
0: Yeah. That's
1: really cool. Are you going to get storage. Red Dead Redemption 3?
0: If you're going to play one, play two. Because there's like different ways that you can go through the story mode of how you die and either one you're a shitty person and your grave is shit or you're a really good person and
1: your grave is awesome. Oh, this is really good graphics. I mean, they're out. It's like cowboys and shit. Oh yeah. Is it like a, like a, it's like universe? Grand Theft Auto.
0: It's like Grand Theft Auto in the 1800s.
1: Oh, Wow. Look at that. The graphics are amazing. Oh yeah. It's an amazing game. I love that game. You got the buffalo and the train. Yep. This is really cool.
0: So you, you just hunting. you're the guy on the horse,
1: you go out and start killing turkeys and you like gotta survive, right? Yeah. You this gotta help badass. your
0: you gotta help your gang survive.
1: Is is any like so is it just like you start and it just keeps going or are you like, can you start over? You don't like the way this one went you start over and it's like a whole new experience. Yeah. Really? Yeah.
0: There's like different options that you can play and it goes in different routes. Wow. This is really cool. I've never heard of this. Yeah. And then the very sheltered world. There's two different, two or three different endings. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: Wow. So, yeah, you're protecting your farm. I see all this. This is cool. And then there's a prologue
0: after, and then if you just ride around in the game, you'll get like different missions and
1: shit. No shit. Yeah. This is really cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love my Madden game and, uh, I like the football game, and I like some of the motocross racing games. That's about it. Yeah, my son's in the freaking uh, what
0: was that Fortnite?
1: Oh yeah, the kids love that, don't they? Yeah, stuff like that. He
0: loves that shit. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Fortnite. Uh, Fortnite. Well, dude, this was a lot of fun.
0: Thanks, Shane. Man, I appreciate you coming on. That's all the time we have for today. You can now find us on our new website, thebceshow.com. Go check it out. You can contact us and subscribe. But remember to give us a rate and review. It helps the podcast with that pesky algorithm. Thanks for listening.